book of Ruth. Be honest, don't lie. The book of Ruth, it's one of my favorite books. It's a little book in between Judges and 1 Samuel, but it's an awesome book, jam-packed with a lot of good stuff. So we're going to get into that. We entitled this series, Hope and Redemption. Hope and Redemption. So remember that as we walk throughout the next five weeks, we're going to walk through this. And the emphasis throughout this series is going to be on the fact that true hope and redemption is found nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. So if you walked in here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your hope, your redemption is found nowhere else but in him. He is our true redeemer. Amen. Now as we look at the book of Ruth, there's many different things that we can talk about in this book. You can talk about famine. You can talk about family. You can talk about God's provision. We can talk about heartache. We can talk about love and commitment. But the things we're really going to talk about, there's two of them. I already named them. It's hope for the hopeless and redemption. Can y'all say redemption with me? Redemption, redemption. Let me ask you, though, when you hear that word, have you ever sat back and just wondered, what does redemption truly look like? What does the word redemption really mean? Some of you all been coming to church your whole life. You've heard this word thrown around all throughout church, but have you ever just sat back and just thought about what does it actually mean to me? What does redemption mean? If you were to look in the dictionary, you would come up with this de definition. Look at it with me. It says, the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Sounds like the gospel, right? Jesus steps out of heaven for us wayward sinners, dies the death that we should have died. He paid our debt so that we could have eternal life if we believe. That's, that's redemption. That, that's the gospel. See, it's the idea of someone or something giving up something in order to gain something or someone back. And we're going to further unpack this theme as we walk through the book of Ruth. And we're going to look at redemption specifically. And I think that this book specifically in a narrative style really gives some clarity to what redemption really looks like. It's a little book, I already said that, but it's jam-packed with a lot of good stuff. It's kind of like eating Sour Patch Kids. How many of y'all know about Sour Patch Kids? Come on, y'all. I know y'all uber healthy, but y'all had Sour Patch Kids. Sour Patch Kids. I love me some Sour Patch Kids. Used to go to the movie theater with my mother and I would beg her for some Thin Mints and some Sour Patch Kids, which I know about Thin Mints, though. Thin Mints, Sour Patch Kids, I wanted, it was the perfect combination. She would never get them for me, but I loved some Sour Patch Kids. Because it'd be these small little gummies, and once you pop it in your mouth, you're like, man, there's so much flavor going on. Because they're packed with so much in that little bit of candy. It's the same thing with this book. Y'all didn't go with me on that, though. I ain't experienced life until you had some Sour Patch Kids. But that's what this book is. It's, it's, it's like a Sour Patch Kid. It's packed with so much in it. And I love every bit of it. And I hope you'll come and enjoy it too. I pray that the Lord will challenge you in new ways as we walk through this book today. Today, I, I, I won't so much as preach a sermon, although I'm really excited to be back with you all. I'm not going to... I'm going to try not to preach as much. I really just want to walk through this book and give you somewhat of a bird's eye view or 30,000 foot view of what's happening in this book. So what I really want to do is kind of lay out the groundwork for what's happening in the book. And the reason I'm doing that and not really just jumping into everything here and talking about every theme in here is because I really can't do that in just one sermon. There's no way for me to just kind of walk through everything in here. I mean, it's a little book. It's got a lot of things in it. it here, 
but, but don't get it twisted. It's very integral to the whole of Scripture. And the reason I don't want to walk through everything in here and try to touch on everything is because I want to encourage you to be reading your Bible. I want you to read the book of Ruth as we're walking through it. So in your quiet times, it's only about four pages in my Bible. I don't know how much it is in yours, but it shouldn't take you more than 10 to 15 minutes to read this book of Ruth. So I want you to read it and just meditate on the scripture and allow the Lord to speak to you through his word. The other side of this is that if you've been here at the church at any any point in time or any amount of time, you know that we're a Bible-believing church. We're a Bible-believing church, which means that you're going to hear the Word of God broken down, whether it's word by word or line by line, each week. And as your pastor, I'm always urging you to continually stay in the Word of God. Read the Word of God. The more you read this Bible, the less you will sin. The more you read this Bible, the more you will hate the things that God hates. The more you read this Bible, you will stay away from the things that God despises. Think of it this way. It's kind of like dating. How many of y'all been on dates before? Don't, don't act like y'all ain't never. Don't do that to me. You've been on a date before, right? Some of y'all are too spiritual to go on dates. You've been on a date before. And the reason you go on a date it's because you found somebody you're interested in and you want to get to know them a little bit more. So you go out on a date with them. You want to know what it's like to be with them, maybe one-on-one. You want to hang with them. It's the same thing with reading your word. God has given us this word to get to know him more intimately. Some of y'all are like, I can't get with that. I don't go on dates. I'm too spiritual. Me and God, we just chilling. I'm watching him or her from afar. That's cool. Watch her or his works. It's good to watch works. You can, you can learn a lot from somebody just watching them. But the truth of the matter is if you really want to get to know them, you got to go on a date. Touch your neighbor and say, you got to go on a date. I did that on purpose because some of y'all are super spiritual in here. And y'all need to hear me say, it's okay to go on a date. The big difference, though, now dating as a Christian, your intentions are different. It's not about sex. It's not about you. It's about a spouse. It's about marriage. That's another sermon for another day. But my whole point here is to understand that in order to get to know God, it's just like dating. You got to spend time with his written love letter to us. Spend time in it and get to know what he has for your life, what he's trying to say to you, the guidance that you need from day to day. It's all written right here. Spend time with him. I want you to walk through the book of Ruth as we're walking through it in the, la- in the next five weeks together. So again, specifically family, I am not necessarily going to just preach a sermon today. I want to lay the groundwork for this whole book. And here's why. When you're starting to preach through a book of the Bible, you guys can take this wherever you go, whether it's this church or another one. When you're starting to preach through a book of the Bible or you're reading a book of the Bible, you want to kind of scan through it and see some things that you notice, whether it be names or themes and, and just the central themes of what's actually going on with that. And what you're doing is, pro- is pretty much kind of laying the groundwork. You're kind of trying to figure out where you're going in the book. It's, it's like going on a road trip. How many of y'all been on a road trip this summer? I know y'all been on road trips because y'all ain't been here. So y'all been on road trips. Been on road trips this summer. And, and it's kind of like going on a road trip. When you go on a road trip, you don't leave without a map or some kind of ways or Google Maps. You go with your, you got your map. 
You have everything you need. You take your goodies. Some of y'all like candy. Some of y'all like coffee and water. You got everything you need to go on this road trip. And the reason you're doing that is because you want to know where you're going and you want to get there and, and, and be in the, in, the, in the best shape possible. You want to get there and you want to know what's happening. You, you, you know the groundwork. You know the road before you actually go on the trip, at least a good traveler would. And see, that's the same thing with this book. Today, I want to kind of lay out the groundwork, so to say, give you a roadmap of where we're going throughout the next five weeks as we're walking through the book of Ruth. You're going to see one really common theme, which is redemption. And again, I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's a narrative. Narrative is just another word for a story. So when you read a story or if you read a book to your children before, you don't necessarily have to add a whole bunch to the story because the stories tend to tell themselves as you read them. There's nothing worse than a person that's a storyteller and embellishes on everything. In about 15 minutes, you're in like, yo, I got where you're going. Why don't you just tell me the point? It's the same thing with this. As we, as we read it, you'll start to hear the themes. You'll start to see what's going on because it's a narrative and it's telling the story itself. So I don't have to add a whole bunch of information to what's actually going on here to help it make sense. But there are usually some common themes. Again, those themes are, can you say it with me? Hope for the hopeless and redemption. Man, I've been away three weeks. Y'all don't know how to talk. Hope for the hopeless and redemption. Amen, amen. There it is. How do we know this is a theme? In the book, redemption is mentioned 23 times. 23 times. Redemption or Redeemer is mentioned 23 times. Not once, but 23 times. It's simply the dominant theme throughout the book of Ruth. If you look at the book, you'll see a woman by the name of Naomi. Naomi is in the book and she has just lost her husband and her sons. And now she's left with her two daughters. Her two daughters-in-law who are Moabite women. They are women from a known tribe that's an enemy to the Israelites. They're enemies. They traditionally served another god. This is who she is left with. The idea of redeemer comes in because in order for the name of Elimelech or the clan, this, this name of Elimelech, this is her husband, as he's died, the, in order for that name to continue on, her inheritance to go forth, there's something called a kinsman redeemer who has to come along and redeem her, take her in as his own, and it ranges, it, nobody in the clan can just come marry her, it ranges from this order, listen to me, brother, uncle, cousin, to close clan relative, they would come along, they would redeem her or take possession of all her land inheritance and bring it into their family, hence still in the clan, and now the name of Elimelech is able to keep going forward. So throughout the book, we're going to be introduced to two different kinsmen redeemers. You'll see them over the next few weeks. There's the one, the first one, who is legally obligated to redeem Naomi and Ruth. He's legally obligated, but he declines to redeem them. He doesn't want to redeem them because of how it's going to affect him personally. He knows if he redeems Naomi, he has to marry Ruth, bring her in, and now if he has children with a Moabite woman, now that affects his inheritance, and he's got to split it between his children already, and now children with this Moabite woman. He, has, he, he doesn't want anything to do with that. 
My man doesn't want anything to do with it because it doesn't necessarily benefit him as he goes forward. Bringing Moabites into his inheritance, that, that's, he doesn't want anything to do with that. He's just straight up selfish. Here's his family member, same clan, struggling. He wants nothing to do with it. It's all about him. And only, only when it benefits him, he wants something to do with it. Sound like anybody you know? Real quiet in here. Now the problem with this is that Naomi and Ruth, they don't have any money. They're struggling. They're pulled. They can't afford the OR. They, they don't have anything. And this brother will not take them in, which introduces us to the next redeemer in line. Because Ruth is found throughout the book. If you read it, she's found picking up leftover grain from different fields as she's going, going about trying to provide for her and Naomi. You see this in Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. This was allowed for the poor. And after the reapers went through and picked up the grain, they could come in after them and they could pick up the leftover grain in order to support their family. So Ruth is out there in the field. She's trying to pick up a leftover grain, whatever is left for her and Naomi to serve and, and for them to, to eat and make it through these days. And she wanders through the fields and she comes across Boaz's land. Boaz sees her and he's like, oh man, who is that? He sees her and he he gets to talk to her. He becomes fond of her. He starts giving her more grain than she can ever pick up by herself. But what Boaz knows is that it doesn't matter how fond he comes, becomes of her, is he's not first in line to redeem her. He can't. Unless the other guy refuses, he can't redeem her. And remember this, as we walk through this, Boaz is not obligated at all to redeem her or do anything with her after the other guy refuses. He could just leave her be. He already refused her. Nobody really wants her. If he didn't want her, nobody has to take her. But Boaz goes out of his way to redeem her anyway. You got one guy who doesn't care about anybody else but himself. You got another guy that goes out of his way to redeem somebody he doesn't have to. You got one guy who has no idea what redemption means. And you got the other guy who knows exactly what it means. Friends, hear me. I need you to hear me clearly with this. Redemption is not free. It's not free. Redemption costs someone something, whether that's their life, whether that's money, time, their personal benefits. Redemption is not free. And for my believers in here, that should sound familiar because salvation is not free. And if it had not been for Jesus stepping out of heaven, seeing us in our wandering waywardness and our sinfulness, rebellion against God, coming down here and taking our sins on the cross, y'all hear me, redemption is not free. It's not free. It costs somebody something. And you see, Boaz in this passage, in this book, in the book of Ruth, he's just a type of redeemer in the Old Testament. Everybody say type of redeemer. He's a type of redeemer. I need you to remember this as we walk through this. He's not the redeemer, the ultimate redeemer. He's a type of redeemer who points us to the true redeemer, which is Jesus. So again, he's a type of Christ, a type of redeemer that points us to Jesus Christ and who he is and what he will do later. As you read Ruth, you'll see that she also is a type of Christ. She, she exemplifies some merited, unmerited uh, just kindness towards Naomi that she doesn't have to do. She's also a type of Christ. Remember this as we walk through the book. Here's why. Because just as we'll see Ruth go out of her way for Naomi to serve and to make sure she's fed, 
and you'll see Boaz go out of his way to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Here's the point. The dominant application for us to take away from this is that Jesus has been both our Ruth and our Boaz. Jesus cared for us when nobody else did. Jesus went out of his way to serve us when he didn't have to. Jesus steps out of heaven and redeems us when nobody else would, nobody else could. He is our true redeemer. But y'all don't believe me. So let's take a walk through the first chapter a little bit. Look at chapter one with me, these first five verses. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. Verses one through five reads, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the countries of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the very word of God. Amen. The text starts, starts by telling us that this narrative takes place in the time of Judges. The Judges were rulers that were put in place over the 12 tribes of Israel. They were both civil and military Judges. These were rulers in place before there was a king put in place. Now the time of this narrative, this time of judges, is very significant because during this time there was a lot of civil unrest and apostasy going on. Apostasy meaning that people were turning from God, their belief in God, turning to something else in which they thought was better. Sounds like our day, right? Sounds familiar. See, this is important to note because in this narrative, it speaks to the need or the want of a true leader, a true king. You see, but the problem with this is that the nation of Israel had already been walking with God, so they had a true king. They had a true leader. But here's the catch. He wasn't enough for them. God wasn't enough. And see, I believe this speaks to our society too because too many times... We want more than what we think God can offer us. We think there's something better than what God has for us. And what begins to happen is that we seek fulfillment in things and places outside of God. And what happens in our hearts and in our lives is we start to form idols that replace God as king in our life. And see, that goes for the believer and the non-believer. Because here's the thing, God's like, look, I got all you need right here with me. I got it all right here. But yet, we seek satisfaction in everything else, whether that be in ourselves, our money, jobs, sex. We keep on going. Power, control, politics. We seek satisfaction from everywhere else except God. And see, this is what the Israelites are essentially doing during this time period. And all of this helps understand this downward spiral that's taking place right now in these first five verses of the book. The place that Israel is in as a nation gives understanding to why there would be a famine in the land right now. 
a famine, meaning there's no food. This was something that usually happened or occurred when God was divinely scourging or punishing the Israelites. But hear me, this isn't just about punishment. The famine's not just about punishment. God used this also to get their attention, to, to get them to understand that he, he, he's the ultimate one that they need. It's also a way for him to receive glory. And what he's really trying to do is for them to turn to him and know that he's the only king that they need. That's what the famine's for. But instead, what we see happen in our text is that my man Elimelech takes his family and moves to Moab. He says, okay, God, you going to start a famine? Okay, cool, I'm out of here. Deuces, I'm going over here because it's better. I'm leaving this place over here, and I'm going here. This man leaves the city of bread. That's what Bethlehem actually means. He leaves the place of city of bread where God has continually provided over and over again, and he goes to the enemy's territory. He leaves the place where God has provided for the people of Israel throughout all these centuries, and now he's going over here to the enemy's territory. When you read it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense that he would leave the place where God continues to provide for them, even though it's hard right now, and he goes to a place where he thinks it's better, and, and it's not necessarily better. He's going to the enemy's territory. The place where Jesus eventually is going to be born, he leaves that place. The place where the, the Davidic line, the, the lineage of David, King David, is going to come through, he leaves that place and takes them to the enemy's territory. The text doesn't say that he stops and he prays and says, God, what would you have me do with my life? They just up and leave one place and go to the other place because he thinks it's going to be better. How many times in life do we leave a place that God might have us and go to this place because we think it's going to be better than all the mess we're in right now? And God might be saying, look, I need you to stay there a little bit. I might, I, I might need you to sit in that mess. Isn't it funny, family, how we can get in these places of trouble, in these places of mess, and the first thing we do is not turn to God. We turn inward and we say, well, this place may be a little better over here. Let me go over here. We don't pray. We don't sit and stay, we leave because it looks better over there. We believe it's going to be better over there. Some of y'all know exactly what I mean. You may be there right now, running from this place to this place to that place because you think it's better and you're not staying anywhere. See, it's easy to turn inward to what we think is best for us and what we see around us it, it, it's hard to turn upward and say, God, what would you have for me? Where would you take me? Because you may not want to hear what God says. It may not happen in the timing that you want it. So we don't turn there. We turn to what we think is best. Which brings me to the point I'm trying to make. Is that we lack trust in the midst of our emptiness. When we see emptiness, when we see mess, when we see trouble, we don't stay. We don't, we don't know how to trust in the midst of the wilderness, so we try to jump out to where we think it may be better. Whether that's a relationship, a job, a house, some more money, we jump out of this and jump to that. We don't know how to stay. It's easy to trust God when things are going well. It's very hard to trust God when things are hard and it seems like it's just full of emptiness. You see, the problem with this is that most of the time when we turn inward to what we think is right, it usually manifests itself in us just going deeper into a darker hole. 
And then we look up and say, how in the world did I get here? How did I get to this place? Watch what happens in the text, verses 2 through 5, because y'all don't believe me. That's what's happening here. Not, not only do they travel to a foreign land, but Elimelech dies. And both of his sons marry Moabite women. Again, these were women of a different tribe, enemies of the Israelites. They served a different god. They, they, they marry them. They don't just hang out with them. They marry them, and, and they, they take them into their houses. And the tragedy doesn't stop there. Because after 10 or so years later, both of the sons die. The text doesn't leave us with a cause of death or anything, but it does let us know that Naomi is left in an even deeper, darker place of brokenness and emptiness than she was in before she left Bethlehem. She has been in a famine. She lost her husband. Now her two sons. Could you imagine what she's feeling right now? Could you imagine the place she's in? She's lost it all. I mean, look at what she says in verses 8 through 14. Pay attention to her tone. Pay attention to the words that she uses in this discourse when she's talking to her two daughters. She says this, go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. In verses 8 through 9, she is basically saying to them, even though you're my daughters-in-law, you've been with me for at least 10 years, I'm not suitable to be your mother. I don't have anything to give you. Go back to your mother's house. They have more than I do to offer you. I have nothing. Family, do you see this whole woe is me type of attitude right here? You see what's going on? See, this is what emptiness does to us. This is where it leads us. To the place where we think we have nothing to offer. She thinks they will find a better life being back at home. They'll hopefully have a family. It's going to provide them with more than they could have with her. They have been with her for at least 10 years. They're barren. They have no children. That's what barren means. That was looked down upon. They have nothing to show for the 10 years, family. Nothing good has come with being around Elimelech. And Naomi sitting there in the midst of her sorrow without hope because of everything that's happening in her immediate circumstances. She moves on to say in verses 10 through 13, they say to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi says once more, she says this, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, this right and this night and, and, and should bear son, would you, look at it, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Wow. 
The women try to stay. But Naomi basically says, go home. I have nothing for you. Go home. Even if God sees fit to bless me with a son in my womb, would you wait? Would you wait till he's grown to marry him? No, go home. And then here's the kicker. If, it's, if that's not enough, Naomi believes, look at verse 13, she says this, based on the end of this, that the Lord is behind all of my calamity. Hear me, some of us walked in here this morning, and you are in places of trouble, you are in, in spots that you want to get out of, and you believe that the Lord is the cause of all of that. If you're honest, you're saying in your heart, it's God's fault I'm not married. It's God's fault I have no kids. It's God's fault I don't have this dream job I waited my whole life for. It's God's fault. If you're honest, some of us feel just like Naomi. You see, family, what happens in the midst of our emptiness is not only do we turn away from God to things that we think are better, but we start to blame God as the cause of everything bad that's happening in our life. We believe he's the cause of all the trouble. It's God's fault that all these murders are happening all over the city of Chicago. It's God's fault that my marriage is falling apart. It's God's fault that my kids are wayward. It's God's fault. Why would he let this happen to me? Why would God do all this to me? I can't handle this. Why would he do this? You ever sat back and just asked God, why are you doing this to me? Why do you have me in this place? You ever felt like you've been doing well in your life? You've been doing well, you've been doing, doing what you think you're supposed to do, you've been trusting God, and then you feel like the bottom just falls out. You're like, God, why are you doing this? I've been doing well, what are you doing to me? I mean, it's hard to trust God and have hope in the midst of those dark times. I remember when my wife and I, some of y'all knew that we were missionaries with Campus Crusade a while back, and it was a tough time when we started raising support. I'm a black guy, was not necessarily from the rich part of town, I, and, and I went to school, got a degree first in my, my immediate family, do all of that. I went and got my degree, and, and when you got out of school, you're not, you're supposed to get a job. You're not supposed to go raise support to be a missionary. That doesn't even make sense. That's not, that's not where I come from. I didn't know any missionaries, so I'm asking people for money. And they're like, what in the world? You need to go get a job, son. That doesn't make any sense. That wasn't a thing where I was from. So raising support was very hard. And here I am, this guy. I, I think I can charge any hill. I can make anything happen. I, that's who I am. I, I'm strong. I can do all these things. But I'm struggling raising support. We're having our first child, and I'm sitting there financially like, I don't know if we're going to make it. I'm thinking in my head, I couldn't say this to my wife, but I'm like, baby, do we have to eat tuna casserole twice a week? Y'all didn't laugh at that. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, Stouffer's lasagna, I, I can't eat Stouffer's lasagna to this day because we would buy the big family joint, you know, not the, the two-serving, the two serving, but the family joint. We'd eat that for three or four days straight. I, couldn't, I can't stand it now. Some of y'all never been there before. But we were struggling. We were struggling, and I remember one of my friends, he's a missionary, he called me, and he was like, Derek, how you doing? 
And I just start going off, man, I'm tired of this. God's got me in this place. I can't make it happen. I'm used to making money. I can make money. I got this other job, but that's not making it happen. The support's not coming in the way it's supposed to. God is doing all of this to me. I don't understand why he's doing I'm ready to throw in the towel. And at the end of my whole little, uh, as I'm just going off, he says, well, but how you doing? I said, what? I said, dude, didn't you just hear me? And he said, for about five minutes, no joke, he went off on me. White guy from Minnesota, he went off on me like, yeah, you told me all of that, but you really just gave me the surface. You didn't really tell me what's going on in your heart, what's really happening in your life, what, what's really practically, where are you? And he went on and on. And, and the truth is, I was just being a, a normal human being. I, I didn't want to seem weak, so I just gave him what I thought he would be able to hear and, and not really what's going on in my heart. And at the end of his whole little going off on me, he said, how are you doing? And I proceeded to tell him, I don't know where my faith is anymore. I, I, I don't know if we're going to make it next month financially. I don't think we have enough money to make it. And he, he said, hold on. He put the phone down. And I could hear him talking in the background. And he came back to the phone and he said, Derek, you know, we're missionaries too. We're in this with you. But my wife and I, you know, we got married a couple years back, and we got all this money from our family. And I said, okay, yeah. And he said, you know, we've been praying about what God would have us do with this money. He said, it's about $10,000. And I said, okay. And he said, we believe that the Lord wants us to give you half of it. My wife and I, we broke down in tears. To this day, it still takes my heart to another place because Here's this man hearing me talk about what God is doing in my life, and I'm ready to throw in the towel. I don't want anything to do with this anymore, but God uses this family who's in the same situation as us to provide, not just for one month, but for the next four months for what we needed to get through these dark days. And family, I, I say all these things to say to you. Hear me. Some of you walked in here feeling like God is against you. He's not for you. Here's the truth. None of that's true. God is for you. He's not against you. And most of the time, he works in ways that you cannot see or could even begin to imagine for yourself. Some of y'all didn't amen that. Y'all just missed it. See, here's the thing, family. As we jump into this book and we keep reading through the book of Ruth, and we'll see next week, Naomi is trying to tell her daughters-in-law, I don't have anything for you. Leave me. Orpah leaves. She goes back home. But Ruth says, no, I'm staying with you. I'm sticking and I'm staying. Some of us need to learn from Ruth how to stick and stay in dark situations and watch what God does. She stays there and she serves Naomi willingly. And through that, through her faithfulness, Boaz redeems them both and gives them a life that they can only begin to dream of. Friends, some of us have walked in here today not understanding what true redemption looks like, what it actually means, and we're ready to throw in the towel just like myself for Naomi in this text. I need you to hear me. Hold on. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to the hope you have in him. I know it's hard right now. Hold on. I know you might have got the diagnosis you didn't want. Hold 
on. Hold on to Jesus. Keep coming to church. Keep hanging out in that Christian community that you may have just started hanging out with. Because here's the thing. You never know, like within my situation, how God might show up. You never know who is your Ruth or your Boaz. Hold on. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you walked in here and you feel like your life is fine without God. Maybe you feel like you're good. The truth of the matter is, is that all of us yearn for more than we actually possess. We all want more. And unless we understand that true redemption comes from Jesus and all that he has to offer, unless we understand that we will remain on this lifelong search, searching for satisfaction, going from foreign land to foreign land, from place to place, relationship to relationship, job to job, house to house, city to city. We're going to keep going all over the place, searching for satisfaction in all these places when God has what we need. We'll keep doing that until we die, just like Elimelech in this text. Hear me, family. Jesus is still in the business of redeeming people, and he wants his children, his creation back. That's you, that's me. He's not done yet. He wants us all back. He steps out of heaven. He dies the death that we should have died on the cross some 2,000 years ago, and he makes a way by us believing in him. In his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers eternal life if you believe. My prayer is as we walk through this text, as we walk through this book, I pray that it will deepen your understanding for how much God truly loves you, how much he truly cares for you. And if you're at that place like Elimelech where you're leaving from place to place, you're searching for satisfaction, you're searching from all, for all, all of this in all these different places. Or maybe you're like Naomi. And you're ready to just throw in the towel. Hold on. Hold on to Jesus. He has all you need. He is our true redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, I'm excited for what you're going to do in the life of your church. God, I pray that we would hold on, that we'd stick and stay with you just like you do with us, that we wouldn't be like Elimelech going from place to place, dying and trying to find satisfaction, but we know that it's found in you, God, that you have all we need. God, challenge us where you need to. Convict us where you need to, God. But let us know that we're loved more than we could ever imagine, but yet at the same time more sinful, sinful than we could ever think. God, it makes no sense that you would love us, but you do. And God, I pray that that's what we'd be caught up in every day of our lives, and we praise from that place, we live from that place of knowing that you've truly redeemed us. God, you're a good, good father. And we thank you for being all that and more all by yourself. God, as we come to this table to take communion together, may we never forget your sacrifice. May we never forget what you've done for us on that cross. 
fact that you didn't stay there, God, but you got up out of that grave three days later with power in your hands, defeating sin and death. And if we trust in you, God, we can have eternal life, which surpasses any satisfaction we could have here on this earth. God, I pray that's where we will rest and lay our hats at the end of the day. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said together, amen. Family, if you're new to our church here, we take communion every week here. We do it on purpose because we want to remember the sacrifice of Jesus where he died on the cross for us. He so willingly steps out of heaven and takes our place on the cross when he didn't have to. He is our true redeemer. When you take the bread in your hand, it symbolizes his body that was broken and given up for us. You take the cup, it symbolizes his blood that was poured out on that cross and cleanses us from our sin if we believe. Believers do this all over the world, remembering who Jesus is and how good he has been to us each and every week. We do this every week together as a community, resembling that community of believers that night when he did that before he died, because we're a family doing this together. So come to the table this morning in celebration. Come to the table in remembrance this morning. But never forget that he is our true redeemer. If you're here and you need prayer this morning, maybe you have misplaced your hope, you've put it in different places, and you haven't been holding on, it's okay. We all get there. I would love to pray for you this morning. Myself, Pastor Luke, will be down front. If you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life this morning, that's what we're here for. Don't leave this place the same way you came in. Amen? Tables are open. Once you're done taking communion, won't you stand and worship with us as we worship our Savior?